Sup guys, welcome back to another episode of a podcast run by Software Engineer. I'm your host Perry and this is 2020 and we're kicking off the year with a great episode. With me today is Rich. Rich, how are you? Doing good. Thanks for having me here. Thanks for being on a show actually. Even even just the story of how I reached out to you. I think we just talked very briefly. I thought you were such an interesting person and the reason why is I guess Rich, where are you from and what do you do nowadays? Yeah, no, great question. Um so born and raised in the Bay Area, lived here all my life been technical recruiting for the about last six years or so. And when I'm not recruiting, I spend a lot of time either cooking or hanging out my Rhodesian Ridgebacks. We do a lot of trails. Um, and that's just kind of my life right now. That is so sick. So that kind of really emphasized, mm-hmm. emphasized sorry, the point that when I was saying that you were just a really interesting character or interesting, I guess, profession to begin with is technical recruiting is something that a lot of people in tech has experienced before. And just seeing it from the point of view of, I guess, somebody who's doing it, it's going to be something so interesting that I'm like super excited to tackle on. So yeah, thanks again for being on the show. Yeah, no problem. So I mean, a lot of times, um, what I'm personally interested in is like, where does this all start? Like, for example, good, wind, like rewind back a little bit. Like, who was high school rich? So high school rich, geez, that's such a long time ago. Um, I, I would say during that time, I was probably involved in a lot of sports. That's where I spent a lot of my time when I wasn't in school. Um, Being part of uh, a first-generation family as well, too, um, there was a lot of pressure for me to make sure I got into college as the next step, right? Um, I I think it's kind of like that immigrant story. My family came from Vietnam. They came here with nothing. And um, with the American dream, like they want nothing but the best for you, right? They want you to achieve the things that they didn't have. And so really it was just making sure I, I put myself in a position to get to college, to get a degree so that I, I can have a good job and a fulfilling life, right? That was like the American dream for my parents. I feel like it's such a relatable thing to talk about mm-hmm. a lot of times that like, he, I mean, did you always have the mindset of in, in high school to become a technical recruiter or did that happen a little, a little bit later on? So it happened a little later on. And, and the funny thing is like, no one grows up saying, hey, one day I want to be a recruiter, right? You don't go to school to be a recruiter, and there's no degree for being a recruiter. Um, it actually happened to be one of the things I fell into. Okay, so that, that's pretty cool then. So in, in high school, uh, I don't know how it works in the States, actually. Like, I've spoken to a lot of people that did the Canadian high school system and the uh, British high school system. And I guess in Canada, towards the end of your high school, you kind of get to choose between like doing history, doing sciences and all that. Is it similar over here or? Yeah, it's pretty similar. Um, As you're applying for schools, there's many different types of universities in California um, or here in the States. It's between private, public, whichever you're choosing. Right. Um, But a lot of times they they do hope that, you know, high school students can declare their major as they apply because that helps them determine the applications and where to place them within the schools. That makes sense. So what did you end up doing actually? Like what did you saw yourself gearing towards uh topic-wise in terms of the later part of your high school? Yeah, good, good question. Um, so I don't know if it's like part of being like in an Asian family or whatnot, but my parents have always pushed me to be either a doctor or an engineer. That's like the, the typical stereotype you get. Uh, but for me, I, I think I always wanted to write my own chapter. I wanted to tell my own story. And to be quite honest, like most young people, if you know, and also being first generation, I didn't know what I wanted to do it's kind of almost like you had to go through a discovery journey just to, to sort those things out, right? Your, your life experiences lead you to your choices, your choices lead you to the next step. Um, and, and naturally, I, I just found myself in sociology. Okay, that's, yeah. that's really cool, because I definitely do agree with the topic that like, at that time of your life, I think, I mean, I, I've definitely had this conversation before where 
you're telling an 18 year old to make a decision on some major that will affect them for the rest of their life. Is it too young to ask them about this? Or should we keep stuff a little bit more general and then like them actually have a specific professional experience and then they could start choosing in terms of what's specific. So when you were mentioning that at that point you wasn't sure what you want to do, you want to keep your options a little bit open or even just having something that defines yourself, that's when, uh, I mean, me, myself, I definitely had that point in my life as well. But um, I mean, my parents are obviously Asian as well. They mm-hmm. just kind of be like, just do engineering, just do all the science stuff mm-hmm. and you'll figure it out. So that's really cool then. So with that kind of background already, you managed to get into a very interesting <clears throat> university after that. So where did you go after? Yeah, so after that, I went to UC Riverside. Uh, maybe it's part of the, the California dream too, I guess, to be down in Southern California near the beaches. Um, Riverside wasn't quite next to the beach, but it was a university I got into. I was happy with it. I was like, hey, at the very least, I, I can make those drives and just enjoy my time there, you know, outside of my studies. Yeah, I like how you just started describing the California lifestyle. Well. <laughs> <laughs> For somebody who I've never experienced California like the way it should be, like, you know, surfing, like being close to the beach mm-hmm. and all the chill, chill vibes and everything. For me, when I grew up, it was all uh, Montreal, Canada, minus 35 winters and like, if it snows, nobody does anything, but they still expect you to show up to school to take your final. And if you don't take it, you basically fail your degree after that. So <laughs> obviously, I think I think uh, the, the sentiment is a lot of people are jealous of the California lifestyle because we could, have, we could definitely help describing it and see how it goes kind of thing. So uh, when you say UC Riverside, UC stands for University of California. Um, how does the system works? Um, what I mean by that is that, is it a group of university or is it just one university with different campus like how does the kind of uc system works if you, if you know about it so i'm not an expert but from what i remember and what i can recall um the uc system it encompasses i guess like a a university or a system of like sister campuses right okay. so you have everything from the bay area down to southern california whether it be santa cruz berkeley uh, santa barbara irvine yeah. riverside san diego um, I, I think at the end of the day, what they're really trying to achieve is to, to build a strong research institution. And also through that too, it's just different than kind of like the state school offerings. State right. schools offer more of like, I guess, practical applications, um, hands-on experience to, to prep you for the real world. Whereas in the UC system, I believe it's, it's more research heavy, it's more theory based. Um, okay. They also offer more degree options too if you're trying to you know get your postdoctor um so that's another thing too so i think state schools they they offer the phds they have master programs but it's not it's not quite as um abundant as in a uc system so at the end of the day it just depends on what type of educational um goals goals you have and what you want to get out of it oh that's that's really cool because um i didn't I didn't really understand what's it like. For example, what's the difference between UC Berkeley and UC Riverside or UC San Diego? I didn't even know there were so many of them. Like, there, UC yeah, there's, there's quite a handful. Yeah. <laughs> so, is one degree available in uh, any of these uh, different, I guess, campus or different kind of UCs? So, for example, if we say uh, a psychology major, would you be able to take that in at any one of these university, or are they split out like? UC Riverside is specifically in this, and then uh, UC Berkeley is specifically in that kind of thing. Yeah, so uh, I, I think some of the degrees that are offered, some of it is core and foundational. So you will see that in a state school, and you also will see it in a UC system. Okay. But the differences might be um, if you're looking for something specific, right? So I would say, for example, a communications degree might be offered at a state school. 
right. but it won't be available at a university, right? Because there's no research around that, or depending on the university you go to, they might have research around maybe public health, right? Okay, or yeah. maybe another form of communication, but it won't be a light, directly aligned to communication. In terms of tech, was there any like a tech department there as well, or because um, I mean, like, I'm such a geek about any comp sci stuff. So, uh, did you did you get to witness anything like that there, or? So they had a school of engineering, um, and I think when I was there, it was still at the early early stages of like developing the department. So it was growing popularity, um, but it wasn't quite mainstream yet. Versus right. like a campus like San Jose State, right? Engineering is already mainstream. You're in the heart of Silicon Valley. Everyone knows like, okay, this is like the first step to getting into tech, whether yeah. it be anything engineering related or maybe another field that impacts engineering. I feel like nowadays we really see the impact of that because like maybe I feel like at that time they were already a couple of years ahead in terms of like when they have such a core engineering program, that's where all these engineers would go and then like they just read a little bit across the Silicon Valley and then boom, that's where you got the biggest like status at the moment of this area. So that's pretty great. So I'm, I guess like your lifestyle during that time was mostly like doing classes or did you have time to do other like activities that you enjoyed doing that kind of influenced uh, how you got into the tech, uh, tech recruiting world after? Yeah, it's so funny too. I didn't grow up wanting to do recruiting. It wasn't like a desire. I fell into it. But when I reflect on my college experiences, I think one of the things that I did unknowingly that had an impact on me today was um, I was in a music club. Okay, right? that's cool. So, that's really cool. And as part of being in a club on a campus, you oftentimes have to recruit a lot of new members on a quarterly basis, right? You're, you're trying to, to brand your organization. You're trying to develop a community. You're trying to create a space for people to express themselves through music, right? And so likewise, like how that transitions into what I'm doing today, it's like, you know, depending on the company I represent or who I'm hiring for, it's I'm trying to build a community of like engineers, project managers, product managers who are mission driven, right? Who want to have an impact on the world, who want to feel like, hey, we're building something that's sustainable for our environment, for everybody, right? So it's just kind of like that natural transition where back then it was musicians and now it's engineers. And I just feel like there's like a lot of um, overlap there. And like unknowingly, I was already recruiting back then. I was gonna say, cause it feels like a lot, a big chunk of what matters to, to you nowadays is something that like you just by chance got it, if you know what I mean? Like there was nobody set out to be like, oh, I'm gonna be, uh, part of this club specifically or whatever. But when you fall into it and like pieces and then you're saying when you look back, it starts making sense and everything. I enjoy those moments. Like sometimes I look back, I'm like, did I actually do that in high school? And then like it kind of relates to what you do nowadays. Like, oh, that's so fun at the end. And um, I was going to say, so did you did that like in the first year you were at university or was did you try a different club before you ended up being in this kind of position of recruiting people, I guess, already? I think for me, so being from the Bay Area and then going down to a school like Riverside, I didn't know a lot of people. And I thought the best way to get to know people was just to find a club, find an organization, um, network, you know, make some friends, um, create kind of like a community for myself, right? And so music has always been one of my passions. Grew up on the guitar. Um, I had a passion for like producing like um, some beats, right? And it, was, it just felt like the right thing. Yeah. I went there, they were a small organization, they had trouble recruiting, and I was just like, 
dude, music is amazing. Everyone plays an instrument, or most people play an instrument, or maybe someone wants to play an instrument. Like, if we brand this properly, like, we can get a lot of members. Like, we can get a lot of people involved in this, and then just became like a quick passion of mine. That's what I was gonna say. You, they can't teach you this in school, you know? Like having a passion and then as you're saying, like the time just flew by by that point when you have like a goal and then you really enjoy every single time. That's something that uh, I definitely do recommend. Um, I do know a lot of people, me, myself, sometimes like during uni, there are a couple of years where I like, I just didn't get involved into anything. So I'd be going to class, going back home because I used to live quite close to campus. So like, I don't know if that's a waste, but I definitely do see the benefit if you do go out of your way to join these kind of clubs and like really emphasize because it will have a good impact on you further down the line whether you want it or not if you know what I mean so um, for the people who don't know if I'm not mistaken the university system in the states is usually four years long if I'm not mistaken it's typically four years long people can graduate in as short as three years right let's say if you can put your AP courses in high school that transfer over there uh, or maybe people who are just like um, doing a lot of summer courses, really just trying to get ahead of the curve. So it can happen right. as quickly as three years, um, on average four years. Okay. And then I think what's been trending for what I've seen, it's nowadays it can be anywhere between four to six years. They get into something, whether because it was right for them then, and then they said like, hey, I'm not as passionate about this, pursuing another degree. Sometimes it could be stories about people get into it because it's what their, their parents wanted and like, hey, it's not me, I think this is more interesting, and then they pursue that. Uh, because college is like kind of like a time of your life like where you still are trying to figure out who you are yeah right and whatever choices you make it does set you up for that next stage of your life life just catches you i feel like a lot of times at that time of your life life just catches you as opposed to you catching life kind of thing if that makes yeah, sense yeah, yeah. like something just hits you but i mean we could definitely transition because the story so far you like it's you're a very diverse person super i guess charismatic and then when you were saying like being able to recruit people it's just because like you have this like i guess born ability to be relatable to people and really just see the world they see and then you can really just emphasize on why music is great or why anything is great so after that you um did you did you take a time off after university or you just jumped straight into like a first job kind of thing or yeah so it, w it was an interesting time um so when i graduated so the u.s economy was still somewhat of in a recession but we were slowly climbing out of it and for my degree it was sociology i had a concentration in marketing i thought marketing was my thing I was like, okay, I'm gonna find a marketing job. That's where I want to go, um, <laughs> just because of my um, my my music club experience, right? Like when you do a lot of recruiting, marketing, and branding, like there's there's some overlap there as well too, right? right? I viewed it as you know field marketing, um, and so I thought that was like the right step for me. But it turns out no one was hiring because you needed experience, right? right. They were being very particular about. Um, I guess what resources they wanted to invest in and what resources they wanted to onboard. And for me, it's just being very green, not enough experience. Um, I needed that, but there was no one who was, you know, in the time or no one during that time um, that had maybe the resources to train someone like me. Exactly. Right. Because we we're still in a recession. Um, and so what I did then is I, I went to San Jose State, applied for an internship at their career center. Um, you know, that was my strategic move to get in front of employers and to network, right? And so I did social media and um, some research for them. And then that kind of just led me to lots of relationships, lots of recruiters at these career fairs, um, lots of employers. And um, eventually I found my way to, with uh, a good match. It was actually a recruiting agency who says, hey, we're looking to hire someone to do technical recruiting, some technical sourcing. You don't need any experience, we'll train you. And I'm like, Sick. wow, this is exactly what I need. Recruiting, I didn't even know that was a job. I didn't even know that existed, but I just told myself, hey, I need the experience right now. If it leads me back to marketing, great. 
or maybe if I end up loving recruiting, maybe I'll stick through it and then we'll let it go from there. Right. And then here I am today, still recruiting. <laughs> Let it rip from there. That's great. Um, this is more than one occasion where somebody has mentioned these career fairs during, uh, during school or during like uh, as, a, as an option to see what's going to lead you to your next chapter kind of thing. Because um, I mean, from my personal experience that like during university, I didn't do any internships. So that's unfortunate. During summer, I used to work a lot at during like day camps and stuff. So nothing to do with any of my engineering stuff nowadays. And even when, um, when there were career fairs throughout the year kind of thing, I would rarely go to them. So I feel like I completely missed out on a lot of those. But when you have these kind of stories where you say like, oh man, give those a try, like it's really on you to make the effort to go out of your way to talk to these people that, you know, that are available at that time that really could make a big impact on your life. And then you were saying you got the absolute chance of uh, getting, getting offered uh, the opportunity to, you know, I feel like I'm going to say be yourself because mm -hmm. a lot of the stuff that you were doing at that time is something that you don't really force yourself to do just, by, just because like you're, you, you found a way to be natural with it. And then anything extra you do is always just like, uh, if you want to do more research about it, it's just an extra advantage that you got at the end of the day. So that was really, really cool. Um, so what was that based in the, uh, the position that you got offered there? Uh, so that was based in San Jose. Okay, in San Jose. Mm -hmm. I'd never been, so I mean, it's so close. It's, it's like so half an hour away, but I really want to check it out. So, so how did that lifestyle kind of transition? So you were, I guess you were being a student at that point, and then you got your first job in recruiting. I guess the comparison is like, what were your first impressions of being a recruiter? And then how was it different than like working for a music club in university? So my first impression of being a recruiter, um, I, to be quite honest, I, I didn't know any better. I was so green. I'm like, hey, I'm just here to learn. I'm going to be a sponge, soak everything in. I'm going to get some experience. And I, I told myself right there and then too, like, whatever I land in, I want to become really good at it. I want to become a subject matter expert, right? And so um, that was kind of my mindset going into it. And I didn't have any engineering experience, um, didn't have a computer science degree, didn't know anything about programming. Uh, but I did have like the will and the desire to learn those things and I didn't want that to be a roadblock for me That makes sense. Was that already at that point specifically for tech recruiting or was it just more recruiting in general that they got you in there? So for? it was for tech recruiting. So I went just straight into it <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, I will toss it. You might switch. You might sink. We'll figure out what it goes kind of thing That is really cool because I mean when you're saying like you didn't have like the tech background or whatever to do with it it's, it's tough to say because like you know already um, people like and as far as I know engineers are people so like I feel like you know a lot of it I think it's just like when we're saying like when they say we'll train you it's probably like ironing out the edges kind of thing being like this is just a slightly different context than that um, what was um, what was the setup I guess what did you need to start doing what uh, they wanted you to do? Was it just you just have a phone and you just start calling people or like what was the just simple setup that you started off with? Yeah, so I, I can only at this time in my career I can only speak for what the the agency environment was set up like. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, they they hand you a desktop, you get a phone, um, they had a database of resumes just you know collected over the years and a lot of it is like you, you, you learn about technology through one resume at a time. You right. learn about it through um, each of the roles you're trying to hire one role at a time, right? And then it also happens through each conversation you have with candidates, one conversation at a time, right? And um, if you're very curious, um, if, you're, if you're always trying to learn, you, you pick up on things. It may not make sense, but over time when you hear it enough, it becomes familiar. It's like learning a language, right? When something's very new. 
Um, the more you immerse yourself in the environment, the more like you actually begin to understand like kind of like the world around you, especially yeah. in the, the field of technology and the various types of talents and skill sets they have out there. Yeah, because I mean, like you, I mean, I keep on saying this, but I kind of discovered the Bay Area and Silicon Valley, like the major league of engineering, and especially for you to be recruiting and like trying to tame this beast of, you know, of a hub kind of thing must be very scary. But um, <clears throat> what is uh, quite interesting, actually, is you came in and you were saying like very, very green kind of thing. What did your team look like? But also, did you have like a mentor kind of thing in terms of like kind of guiding you through? Because I think a lot of people, when they get their first uh, I guess real professional, uh, real professional position. That's something that really impacts them. So, what did that look like when you were? Uh, yeah. There? So um, immediately when you start, you have a mentor to go to. Already, they they help you with the onboarding. They train you. You you have your one on ones, um, and then also in addition to like, so I was at Robert half of the time, and they just had an abundance of training materials. So I guess their internal, um, I guess intranet was just full of knowledge and resources. So. The combination of having access to something like that and like the will to kind of like learn all those things supplement that with like a mentor with like real world experience to actually walk you through the challenges and the successes is is really impactful that actually is so great to hear because like a lot of times i don't know i feel like sometimes these position of like being able to recruit something it's so it sounds so independent in terms of like you're responsible for these cases and like it's up to your creativity up to your like independent will to, to tackle out of it. So I guess what was the balance in terms of like how much creativity could you put into your position as opposed to how much actual like technicality and like structure of mm -hmm. the process and everything? I mean, at that time specifically, I'm pretty sure now. Yeah. At, at that time specifically, <laughs> I, I would say like, I'm still learning how to recruit. I'm learning the system. I'm learning the process, the workflow, how to do things the right way. Right. And so I, I don't think I, I can't say I had a ton of creativity then. Yeah. Um, I wish I did, but a lot of it was just soaking everything in and then with the experience as you grow in your career, then the creativity, creativity comes with that. It's so similar. I remember when I had my first like tech job, whatever, when I was saying like tech, you can create anything in the world. You work with blind canvas all the time, but mm -hmm. when you just start, everything seems like you don't, you don't know anything. You know? Yeah, like, yeah. You, oh, you do it this way, then I'm going to do it this way. Like you do that when you're saying being a sponge, like it's so similar in terms of like my personal experience of just getting into a tech job and seeing other people like other mentors or other people that has been doing it for a couple of years how they managed to do stuff so uh, i do understand the impact of the first profession job but then uh you ended up joining another team after that mm -hmm. um so how long were you at rubber half and then uh how did the transition go to the next uh project that you worked on so i was there for maybe about six months or seven months or so it, it was a short term um but what had changed was some of the mentors I had there had decided that like well, they're much further along in their career. Um, but they, they made the decision like, hey, we want to start a staffing agency of our own. Mm -hmm. Right. And so there was a core group of guys who are really passionate about this. Um, they, they had an entrepreneurial spirit about themselves. They, they wanted to create something for themselves. And they noticed that, you know, me being in my first recruiting role, being green and whatnot, like I had a motor, right? I was just so curious to learn. I want to soak everything in. Um, I wanted to become like really good at what I, what I can, you know, can capably be good at doing. And they, they pulled me with them. And okay. so they were already great mentors to me. I, and I knew for myself then like, okay, I'm still young. I can take this risk. I got nothing to lose. And I'm already learning from these guys, so why not continue to learn from them, you know, as I transition to like the next company? 
Right, and that's when uh, I guess when I say the the skills are transferable. That's literally mm -hmm. you're grabbing like a lot of stuff <laughs> <laughs> into the new project. So that's really great. So, and then that kind of like exposes you to like more of a even um, premature formation of a company or like the premature formation of a project. Like you could you definitely got witness to the blueprinting mm -hmm. of um, how like starting off of point zero as was starting off from point one point six when you join a company. So. Um, in terms of responsibility at that point then, you already have like a good amount of responsibility when you were working at Robert Half. Did you see those responsibility really change as in a completely different set of responsibility or were you still tackling the same kind of problems? It, I would say it was the same responsibilities but with added projects, right? Or added additional things that actually helped me continue to grow. Um, so what had changed was basically you go from a mature environment with processes, resources, everything in place. Yeah. One way to look at it is that you're just working in production, mm -hmm. right? Versus, you know, when you go to a startup, right, you have nothing. We didn't have chairs. We didn't have desks. We had to get equipment. Uh, we had to get a new applicant tracking system, which is called an ATS. Um, you really have to build everything from the ground up. So now you're kind of like in the, the development stage, right? But yeah. you're still trying to do production and development at the same time, right? In terms of like um, technical thinking. But so I'm still recruiting. Um, I'm still working with clients. We get a new book of business. We bring in new clients to work with. But what what had changed is there's more documentation now, right? right. Because if we want to scale this thing, we have to be able to, um, you know, grow the business. We have to be able to train more people to replicate and do what we're doing, so that we can move on, learn and grow, and you know, do the same thing for others. Um, and so that was an added responsibility, training people. Um, we, we've hired a few junior recruiters too while I was there. Um, and then again, like just like really just thinking about, okay, how do we continue to grow revenue? Exactly. Right? Because in order for a business to operate, you, you have to have positive cash flow. So it was just kind of like a different mentality. Rather than just helping people find great jobs, it was helping people find great jobs, but then also how do we keep the ship going? Exactly, yeah, because I mean, a lot of times, um, I think the two big point is uh, I get asked quite often, like, oh, what's the difference between working in a corporate environment or like a smaller startup? And that would be one of the examples that like, when you're in a startup, it feels a little bit more like flexible fluid in terms of like, you gotta be quick on your feet, more quick on your feet, I guess. Uh, just because you were saying like finding a way to scale, being scalable is always a problem that everybody wants to solve, but especially so when you're in a slightly younger company, because like if you can't scale that, it's gonna be an absolute nightmare from that point. So the topic of being corporate versus startup has always been a fascinating thing. And especially for a recruiter, you were saying that there's gonna be loads of different uh, responsibilities on top of our usual, uh, I guess, main core responsibility uh, at that point. How does uh, the success rate of recruiting um, fluctuate, I guess, throughout uh, the beginning of your, your career, I guess? So did you find that you were uh, really high success rate when you have Robert Half and then like it slowly dipped throughout or like what well, has it always been up and down kind of thing? Uh, I would say recruiting is kind of like a roller coaster ride. There's a lot of highs and yeah. there's a lot of lows and sometimes like you know you're somewhere in the middle right like you're just cruising and so I've definitely experienced a lot of that and every role I've hired for um, or every client I've worked with like it's just a different experience right? Just because everything comes down to employer branding. If you're working with a, uh, an employer who has that brand, obviously there's going to be a lot of highs. You're working with another startup, right, who's your client or maybe someone who's a kind of um, a smaller size company that doesn't quite have that brand there too. Like there's going to be a lot of lows. And then also sometimes um, you, you work with people or clients actually um, who have a good product, right? Yeah, exactly. Right? They don't have that employer branding. They're not quite... 
um, struggling to brand themselves, but like people can find them, it's relatable, right? And it helps a lot with the process too when you have something that people are interested in. It definitely so, makes the job a lot easier. It, it, like, it makes the job, them. yeah. So you see a bit of everything. And then like I would say in addition to, like, an, to add another layer, it's also about like skill sets. Some mm-hmm. skill sets are high in demand. Um, some skill sets, uh, there's just not enough supply, right? Because it might be still early. Yeah. Um, I think during the time I was in that startup, that was when DevOps was beginning to emerge. Okay. Right? It was becoming like the trend, the, th- the thing. Um, everyone wanted to hire DevOps, the clients we were working with, but there wasn't anyone we can hire, right? There's yeah. like not anyone who was an experienced DevOps individual because it's still at its infancy stage, it, right? Like, it wasn't really considered a position until like maybe recently. So mm-hmm. saying that we want this position, but it never really was. As in like DevOps back in the day would probably be uh, an engineer's like part responsibility. So every engineer would have a part responsibility of being a DevOps at the end. But now when you're trying to focus like a specific role for it, it's like asking five people to give a piece of themselves and like put that into a role. So exactly. I, I kind of see yeah. the problem that you had over there. So, so like you, you had a lot of clients who are still trying to like figure out what this role really means and you know how to figure out, okay, this is the right person we want to bring in. Yeah, so, I mean that that, that, that has its challenges. <laughs> yeah, that that's a challenge inside of another challenge. Like mm-hmm. it sounds like Inception. You just never end, <laughs> and then never end with that. But the one thing that you mentioned that was quite uh, good during that time was that you really got to overlook other people trying to get into the recruiting world as well. Um, how did that feel like? And like in terms of like what worked well with uh, newer people? Like what did you say that made them respond better, or what did you say that didn't work out too well? How did that look like mentoring other people into this kind yeah, of world? Yeah, so that was my first exposure to mentoring someone, and the best way to describe it is kind of like that out of body experience, <laughs> okay. because like you're looking at this person who's also green, and then you're like, wow, was that me? Like this is like holy smokes. Okay, like, okay, well, what did I learn from my experience? What can I do differently with them so that, you know, I can take them to the next level, yes. right? And then and perhaps, you know, when they mentor someone else, they can pass along that same mentality. Right. Um, but, yeah, it was really interesting. Um, I also felt like I was able to give back. Um, I really shared, you know, with my experience, everything I knew. Um, you know, working with candidates, it's not always easy. So you have your highs and your lows, too. You have great people you work with. You have some people who aren't quite so nice. And really kind of just coaching them through those conversations, like and letting them know, like, hey, it's you know, you're doing your job at the end of the day, it's not you, right? Yeah, it's just, exactly. You're just gonna you have to manage a lot of personalities in this field. And that's all it really is. And like personalities, we talk about millions and billions, right? We yeah, talk yeah. about you have the ideal candidate, but some stuff is lacking. Or the other way around, we're like Eh, nothing's good, but they're really like specifically good at this, and it's mm-hmm. like the like the the stars don't always align when when you look at that, and then that's really the most frustrating. It's like only if they were this a little bit more, or only this like only if this were that a little bit more kind of thing. So, um, I guess like I guess uh, from from that point is uh, you managed to do a lot of that, and then you ended up taking another project after it called Bayside Solutions, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, so I went to Bayside Solutions. Um... So the startup, like, you know, they, they say like nine out of 10 times, not all startups will succeed, right? right? And so I think we happened to fall into that that stereotype there, but it was a, a good lesson. Um, the company was around for about a year or so before we we had to close the doors and a lot of it had to do with them, just the, the leadership's vision. And so we just changed directions. Um, I mean, like that is definitely more impactful to what you become later on than anything else. like. Nine out of nine out of ten—that's a big number. I've heard this number somewhere else as well. Like it's a, quite a number that people agree on that these kind of 
crazy, crazy numbers are affecting it. But I've the amount of people that I've seen gone through the process, like even just starting something out of nothing, you could compare it to that as saying you don't learn this kind of stuff in school. You don't learn that you have so many responsibilities that you're able to take care of without being in that position to begin with. So, I mean, with that kind of baggage, you manage to like take all that momentum and all that swing and put it into some um, the next chapter. So, were you still a specifically technical recruiter at Bayside or? Yeah, so I've been a technical recruiter um, my entire career. Okay. And so I, I joined Bayside mostly because of, um, I followed my VP there too. Okay. So this is the same manager I've had since Robert Half. So from Robert oh, wow. Half to Corporate Labs to Bayside, um, I followed him through and through. And, I, and for anyone who's listening, I think just find yourself a great mentor, find someone who's gonna help you uh, succeed, help you learn from your failures. Um, he was that person for me. And so it made sense for me to continue to follow his footsteps because I still had a lot of learning to do. I mean, even like, I think at this point, maybe three or four years into my career, it's like, I'm still not an expert, right? I still got a lot to learn. Yeah. Um, but then I, you've already had impact on other people as well. So I've already had like, an impact on other people, yeah. but like there's still like, so much for me, right? Exactly. And I feel like a lot of times it's so true that you got so many of this stuff in parallel. Because like, you know, the people that were uh, affected by your mentorship as well, they would be looking at you and be like, oh, this guy knows everything. But then like you're in your position and we're like, I still got so much to learn. And I still got like, you could always look at somebody else to do it. So it feels like always a chain and nobody is at the destination at the end of the day. Like we're <laughs> always still growing from that. It, you just really made it sound like it was like a karate kid moment where you got, like, <laughs> where you got that going. So um, that's uh, that's really cool. This is just a random question. Is project managers, would that fall into part of tech recruiting or are they part of like another? So there's many different realms of project management and it depends on what the project manager is focused on. So I would probably put it into two different buckets. Okay. There is the business side of the house and there is the, um, the tech side of the house, right? And so with project management for business, it could be different types of deliverables, right? Depending on the industry you're in. Yeah. Um, and it's gonna be non-tech related. And then versus on the tech side, right? That's another beast in itself too, but you have project managers who work directly with engineers, right? And they're helping them project plan uh, with their deliverables. Sometimes it's infrastructure related projects. Sometimes it's software related projects. Um, it just really depends on like what you're looking at. That so there's many, I, get, I would say to summarize everything, project management comes in many forms. Okay. I mean, yeah, even the word project manager, yeah. you mean anything <laughs> about for I think that was just really for me itself because I keep on hearing about what makes a project manager like tech or not tech. I think that's probably like mm -hmm. the biggest thing. And then it kind of reflects on when you're looking for somebody to fill this position. That kind of reflects on like where the tech recruiting comes part of recruiting the tech, uh, sorry, the project, project manager or it's part of another recruiting team, part of that. So that one's definitely for me myself. <laughs> um, and then one thing that you did mention that was really cool is that the when you're talking about the industry, in terms of, um, so so far we got a couple different chapters in, uh, in your great story. Um, were they on the same industry in terms of were they always trying to sell, I guess, like the product? Has that always been like a hardware product or a software product or mm -hmm. just any kind of different industry in that case? So from Robert Half leading up to Bayside Solution, um, the industries always change depending on who your clients are. Or I guess right. or how diverse your portfolio is or your book of business, whatever you want to call it. Um, that really determines the types of products you're selling in terms of like opportunities with the, you know, candidates or job seekers. And so I think Robert Half and I was there, a lot of it was probably enterprise focus. So data center moves or like okay. office moves or like um, a lot of the skills are like, you know, people who did like desktop support or like were like in operations. Right. 
So that was the focus there. And then when I went to uh, corporate labs, that was kind of more, I, I would say we maybe had more software focused clients there. So think about like the Vendinis. And if you're not familiar with like Vendini, I think they were like, um, like a Ticketmaster or a StubHub, right? Okay. So you have like those types of platforms. You had financial platforms. You also had like some. Um, well, I mean, it's endless. It yeah, sounds yeah, like yeah. endless. So like, point, it, but. I would say like it just varies anything from finance to software to retail, software as a service, yeah. whatnot. Yeah, enterprise. Yeah, enterprise. Like, somehow, yeah. nowadays, they'll probably have like like self-driving vehicles in there somewhere. <laughs> like they'll throw in the whole mix, and that kind of reflects a lot of like. The, the, some of the problems that you have to solve in terms of like, did you have to do a lot of research for every specific one of them to be able to be confidently like portraying the goal of- Yeah, so in that type of role, when you're in an agency, you, you have to be a chameleon. You're, yeah. you're representing so many different clients, so many different products. You have to research their products. You have to know how to pitch it to candidates, right? Um, just to make sure like, hey, like they, they're, they can relate to the, the organization. They can relate to the opportunity. Right, they can relate to what the company stands for, and then that's what makes it attractive, and that's where you kind of start aligning the goals and like all the objectives and all what a company could offer to the next candidate that's doing that. And then, I mean, I personally witness it, and you're really good at it, so <laughs> that's one of the great thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, so far this is this has been such a ride in terms of like when you started, I guess, in high school, and then to go through university and never figuring out. But then, like, by the time you realize that you're in this position, you're like, I feel like you're quite deep in the game already. Where you've talked to so many people, you've learned so many uh, from your research of different companies at that. So, um, but then one of the, I guess, would, would you consider like a big change when I guess you got to the next project after Bayside? Yeah, so after Bayside, I, this is probably the moment in my career where I felt like I joined the big leagues. Right. <laughs> so, um, so I made the transition to Google, um, and I, I would just say the way they operate, it, it's a well-oiled machine. Um, you're working with a lot, a lot of talented people. And yeah. just like when you, you think the world of recruiting is like, I guess small, it feels big there, right? Exactly. Because I went from being maybe one of a handful of recruiters to one of a thousand recruiters, right? Because they're doing a global global hiring, right? So not everyone was housed, housed in Mountain View, but just the org itself, like we're spread across the United States, we're spread across you know the world. There's recruiters everywhere. Like you're, you're just one of so many. The logistics must have been nuts. That's usually yeah. how I describe it at that point. So I think what would be interesting is more just looking at the logistics behind it. Because you were saying like, how do you compare like a handful of recruiter as opposed to like a thousands of recruiter? Like the logistics behind it. So I guess if we could start in terms of like, um, I guess where is it located? Did you have to like go into the office every day kind of thing, or were you able to work remotely? So. Um, is the office based in Mountain View is probably what I was trying to say. So they're, they're based in Mountain View. Um, and so that was the, the role and the location I was hired for. Right. Um, but they, you know, it's kind of as advertised, right? Flexible work schedule, um, great work-life balance. You okay. can work remotely as needed. If you, want. <laughs> um, if you wanted, right? And yeah. then, um, yeah, I, I think they just, they had a great philosophy in terms of what it means to bring yourself to work and, you know, produce the results that we all need and how do we do it together as a team. Yeah, and I guess you must have had like little perks there because I'd imagine they would have their own separate campus and then like they would have everything. Or are they a part of like just in a building kind of thing? What did it look like visually? So Google, the, the best way to describe it, I, I would say it, it, it's like a whole university. It's a large oh, campus. Okay, a campus. Um, it's fixated between Mountain View and Sunnyvale. 
Um, I think there might be like pockets of offices in Palo Alto. We had offices in San Bruno, offices in San Francisco. Um, and then it goes nationwide as well too. I, yeah. I, I don't recall how many offices I have at the top of my mind, but I would say maybe some of like the major, major areas might be like Seattle, Austin, New York. Well, I mean, uh, I was in London for a bit, and I've been to that office. And there's well, one so in London, like, of course, yeah, right? So when you were saying worldwide, uh-huh. they really are worldwide. Yeah. Even in Montreal, where I'm from originally, like, they do have an office there. Uh, yep, they have one there. They have one in Japan, Singapore. Yeah. How do they usually distribute that, then? Is the, I guess, the office in London, are they responsible for recruiting in London specifically, and you were responsible for just uh, this area? Or did you ever happen to be uh, having to recruit somebody from one part of the world for an office at a different part of the world. So how was that distributed Distributed between? So every team operates differently. So when you're at a large company like Google, like the teams are so large where you really begin to, sp- to specialize in specific skill sets for specific locations. So let's say if a recruiter is based in London, they're likely hiring for London or that region. That makes sense. Um, <laughs> if we're based in Mountain View, I think first and foremost, we are hiring for the Bay Area. But if there's any supplemental support that we can do for like Seattle, New York, or Austin, um, they can also allocate toward allocate us as resources toward those hiring initiatives as well too. Yeah, and when you were saying like um, recruiting into I guess Mountain View specifically, um, is that mostly organic, or did you ever have to like reach out and at that point? Uh, what I mean organic is that like do do you just end up having loads of people like just knocking on your door basically, or were there any moments where you want to target? specific people that you have to be more active than uh, reactive to it. It really depends on the strategy you put in place with your team. But I think with Google, the, the branding they already have, we get millions of applications. Um, so I think that's where we start. In comparison to smaller size companies, when you don't have a database or that brand or as many people applying to a company like Google, yeah. right? you have to use outside resources like the LinkedIn's, the Glassdoor's, the, the Dice Monsters, or um, I think nowadays A-List is a popular platform as well too. I haven't heard of that one, but uh, we could definitely dive into the whole like world of specifically what software we use. But just to wrap up on this one is that, um, so by the time you got to, I guess, Google and everything, how did the um, recruiting teams look like? So what I'm trying to put a resemblance to is that like in an engineering, you got like, you know, your engineers, then you got a project manager. A lot of times you, if you're lucky, you get a designer within your team and then like it kind of makes into a nice little package of an engineering team. What's the similarity for a recruiting team? Like which part, who's, who does what in a recruiting team kind of thing? Who does what? Um, I think it, it really differs depending on the size of the company and where you're at because Recruiting isn't the same everywhere you go, and that's what I've learned. Okay, you know, making yeah, the transition but... from agency to Google, and now I'm in a startup. Um, and also, what I've learned from you know other colleagues as well too, who've come from like the Airbnbs, the Teslas, or whatnot. Yeah. Um, but it's everyone's got their own way of hiring, right? And it's not always apples to apples. I, I think there's similar frameworks that we all follow, um, but there's also nuances, lots of nuances. Okay. Uh, but to answer your question, how we're set up. Usually, depending on the philosophy, there's something that's called a full cycle recruiter. Okay. Um, and what that means is that they'll do they'll handle can, the candidate experience from end to end, right? So from the initial outreach to the phone screens, the on sites, all the way to the offer, they manage the entire. I guess you can call it life cycle of hiring. Okay. Um, and then you have other recruiters who get sourcing support, where you kind of divide that role into two different positions. So the sourcers would then. There's essentially still recruiters, but they would do everything from the initial outreach 
all the way to the on-site stage, right. and then the recruiters would kind of manage it from the on-site stage all the way to the, the offer. Okay. Right, so it's like a shared responsibility. So some, some companies are set up that way as well too. I think typically where you see that type of relationship is in a larger size company versus, yeah, I was say. versus a smaller company, right? You may not have enough budget to hire as many resources, and so you might want someone who can do it all. So I mean, I guess one of the, the benefit, the ideal reason why you have two groups of people so that like the transition could be more efficient in terms of some people might be really good at the sourcing and then the other people are really good at doing that and then you could just be more a little bit more granular mm -hmm. in terms of splitting that up. It's so. like divide and conquer. You allowed someone to be like, you know, a subject matter expert. And if we compare it to like software, right? It's like yeah. front end versus back end. Right, like the sources are the front end part of the role, and then like uh, the recruiters like the back end part of the that's role. That's the thing, and everything needs to be seamless. And everything like, needs it, to be seamless. Yeah, that's so fun. Um, yeah, because I mean, like, I mean, I obviously had a couple of uh, personal recruiting experience from like you know different. No, I didn't recruit anybody. That's not what I meant. I mean, like, I had a lot of experience talking to recruiters and everything. So like, and I do see the different process where you'd be talking either to the same person from beginning to the end, or you kind of like get moved along this whole thing. So it's really interesting that like from your point of view it really makes sense and it kind of lines up and we see the benefits of doing one as opposed to the other. Um, and I kind of like this story where you were saying that like oh, after doing Google, it's like a, obviously Google, major company and everything. Uh, nowadays you're working at Scoop and that's more of a smaller startup. But then in terms of like, I keep on talking about responsibilities kind of thing. How was uh, the transition again back into a smaller company after doing Google then? Um. I would say it felt pretty similar to my days working in the agencies. Right. Uh, just because agencies aren't quite large as the Googles of the world, but like, I, I think you, you just operate at a smaller scale. It's a more close-knit community, right? You have more visibility of things. Um, it's, it's almost kind of like, you think about the enterprise or corporate stereotypes, right? Yeah. The larger the company, lots of red tape, lots of layers and processes versus you know going to a smaller size company like there's there's more creativity right there's less roadblocks um, there's more room to experiment right there's more room things there's more room to try and fail right and learn That's not to say you can't get that in a large company but I think there's just um, larger companies sometimes can create some of those delays to get you to where you want to be it's such a it's such a valuable point to, to point out because like when I don't, I don't know if it's completely true the general mindset, but when people compare like Google to another like corp, more corporate company like Salesforce or whatever, they would imagine Google is super liberal and super like you could do whatever you want, but they do have layers of process that you still gotta go through no matter what, just because if they don't have these process, everything goes to crap, basically. <laughs> so um, what, uh, what we could compare is actually like, were there major differences in terms of the recruiting process at, I guess Google compared to the other companies, Scoop or Bayside, that you saw a big difference. So, for example, the general uh, recruiting process for an engineer, I guess, from my point of view, is that you get the phone screening, and then uh, you get a take home usually. And then mm -hmm. if the take home goes well, that's when you could either get an on site or a remote interview, depending on where you're in the world. And then if everything goes well, it kind of goes onto the offer, and then that's where the kind of talk goes. Was that similar? Google. I'm taking Google the example as the bigger company compared to like the smaller ones. So I can't speak for software engineer hiring at Google because I was mostly focused on designers at the time. Right. Um, but I would say, in generally, generally speaking, I think a lot of tech companies do practice, whether you're a software engineer or even a designer, I think there is that practice of a take-home exercise before you go on site. Okay. Just to collect some data points and make sure like, hey, um, we do feel confident that this person you know, can be successful at the on-site stage and you know, we're willing to invest in them to learn more about them.
Yeah, was it was there a clear obvious thing that the standard at Google was way higher than every every other recruiting process at uh, all the other? I, I would say the hiring standard is different from place to place, and it comes okay. down to philosophy, right? Um, As in the same test at two different. Uh, I mean, if you submit the same answer to two different uh, companies, would that be like a big difference between just? It would be a big difference. Okay. And the reason why I say that is, um, what what really goes into it is the panel you have. Yeah. Right. Everyone. It's hiring is very subjective, and there's a lot of opinions, and. Depending on who is on your panel can also determine how they view your answers, right? So every onsite you have, whether it's with Google or another company, it's not always going to be the same. Like we we have a rubric, we we have something that we follow, like where we're like we want to make sure, um, you know, that everyone is assessed fairly, right? But how people evaluate, you know, it's a little different. Like for example, if you and I both have a cup of coffee. Right, we're gonna have different opinions on it. Exactly. Right, and that's kind of what you're working with. And when you're in the recruiting world, you know, in terms of you know trying to find, bring in the right people for the right team, you know, someone who can add a value or who's someone who can add value, right? And just depending on who the panel is, you know, there's so many different opinions that you have to manage, and you also have to make sure that the decision is equitable. That's the thing.、Um, I feel like I've definitely had this conversation before in terms of people beating some beating themselves up. Like people apply for different jobs and be like, "Oh, am I really not that good enough for this kind of stuff?" Or、mm-hmm. and then when you were adding the fact that there might be some subject subjectivity to it,、uh, I think the important point is that the people going through the process of like sending out all the application never always turning out like the best. Sometimes it's not them. Sometimes it's just like depending. Uh, outlier the offset of that. So yeah, one of my best advice I love to like to share with candidates is, I know for some people, it's a big decision. They're really excited about the company, right? There, there's a reason why they've invested time to like to interview because they want to be there, yeah, right. And it's not always the candidate that failed the interview. It's like, and that's like the the biggest takeaway. I think the biggest takeaway is. Where the company is at that stage, it's just not the right time to hire you. Exactly. Right. Because people hire different people at different stages of what the company is going through, and at those different stages, there's different needs. Right. There's different skill sets that are needed. So I always want to leave it with them, like, hey, it didn't work out this time, right? But let's stay in touch, and perhaps there is another time where it's the right time or a better time, right? And then also too, like, I. It's it's more it's pretty common at Google. Some people interview two or three times before they land a job there. It's、right. all it's all about timing, right? It's all、yeah. about the maturity of the team, the maturity of the processes, or maybe the the programs cha- changes or the mission changes, right? And then that's when your skill sets become more valuable. Then, exactly. And when you're saying like the timing is so important, and like that's such a variable that nobody can really control at the end. If you、mm-hmm. know what I mean, like timing is great. Like you would be the perfect perfect candidate if there wasn't six other one like you as well. And then like you have to disappoint five other people because like、mm-hmm. one person、mm-hmm. gets it. So that's usually、uh, <laughs> such a thing. I think one thing personally from somebody who has gone through a lot of different processes of recruiting, like you kind of learn to let go real quickly. <laughs> well, not letting go like instantly, but you kind of learn to accept that like it's. There's different conditions that you can't control that kind of ends up on the impact. But one thing I do know is that like if you keep on pushing, something will work out at the end. So that's always the optimistic bit to that.、Um, even just、uh, backtracking real quick, how did the process of, I guess, applying for Google different than applying for any other company out there? So there's a variety of different ways to hire.、Um, some people apply, right, and that's that's how you know you get engaged into you know the hiring process.、Yeah. Um, 
other people, they, they get reached out to, right, by some of our sourcers. And then other people also get referred to referrals. And referrals is also yeah. a big part of hiring. For Google, at least 40% of their hires were through referrals, right? Just because, like, when you're dealing with people's livelihoods, like, and you're, you're asking them to change jobs or to take a chance on a company like Google or any other company, right? It's very community driven, yeah. right? You wanna work with good people. You wanna work with people you've worked before. You wanna feel like you're in a safe environment, right? You wanna feel like you're, the people that you work around, you're, you know, that you trust them. And that's why referrals is such a big thing for hiring, right? It plays a, a big role in hiring um, for Google, for any other company, even with me being at Scoop today. It's a, yeah. it's a large part in how we hire as well. The vouching, 100%, like with the different jobs I've had before, every company it's, has some sort of referral program. That... It's not necessarily vouching. I, I think it's more of like, you give yourselves the higher odds of an acceptance of an offer, right? right. Once someone makes it through the process. Okay, that's right? interesting. So we, we still treat referrals like any other individuals. Yeah. They still get, you know, um, the same treatment, the same interview, the same process, the same question, nothing changes. It's just that in order for us to scale, we increase the likelihood of acceptance rates, right, so that we continue to grow and build. And it sounds a little bit more efficient at the end when you it know is. that the, the, the pipeline coming up is a little bit more higher quality or like there's some reason extra on top to why you should give that a chance. Like that sounds... I, I think a lot of it is just building a good culture, um, building people who trust each other, right? You're, you're not reinventing anything. It's kind of yeah. more, it's very organic, right? People naturally gravitate towards people they want to work with. Except for engineers, because we just seclude ourselves. And like, <laughs> I'm absolutely kidding on that. That's definitely not true. Um, but yeah, that's pretty cool then. So yeah, you're definitely working on a like, really fascinating project nowadays on Scoop. And then uh, love the te technical recruit recruiting world, sorry. Um, what, uh, what do you think is the biggest challenge nowadays after having so many baggage with you, so many experience with that? Is that like, do you find it hard to learn new things? Or do you find it hard to, I guess, translate so many things into a smaller package to somebody who just started, for example. So what are the different challenges you find nowadays? I would say there's different hiring problems everywhere you go. Everyone's dealing with something different. There's not one challenge that fits all or one solution that fits all. Um, in terms of what I see today, being in a startup, it's really branding yourself, right? It's, it's telling your story, it's having that narrative, it's helping people understand like, why are we the right decision for you? Like, why do you want to be here? Why should you be here? Like, you know, like, yeah. we're, it's convincing people like, you know, we are the thought leaders of our industry and we're trending that direction. And so just because in this area, there's so much There's so comp so much competition. And Actually, like, now that I think about it, I'm glad you called that out. The biggest challenge probably is the competition. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it's really okay, I guess, it's a combination of employer branding and competition. One is how relatable are you to candidates? Yeah. And how do we help them feel confident, like, hey, we are the right career decision for you? And then the challenge in relation to that is also the competition. You have other great companies out there who also want to tell their story and who also want to differentiate themselves, like, hey, you know, this is why you want to be here. And being in a competitive market for a candidate, you know, especially if you're highly sought out after, like you have choices. Right, you have lots of choices. Um, every candidate we interview has three to five other interviews. Oh yeah, tell um, about it. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes they have two to three other offers and it comes down to what, which decision is the right for them, right? What's gonna take them um, to the next level? What's, a, what's gonna help them grow professionally? What's gonna help them personally, yeah. right? Because at the end of the day, work is a, product, is, a, is a byproduct of our lives, right? It gives us meaning to the lives that we live outside of work.
And I right. mean, for some people, work is first and foremost, which is great. But for some other people, it's like work gives me a means to live, so I can provide for my family, so I can live my passion, so I can write the chapter the way I want to write it. Exactly. So, I mean, when you're saying you probably have one of the hardest convincing jobs out there, you probably do have one of the hardest <laughs> convincing jobs out there. So. Um, I just want to bring this back to the point of um, the level of creativity nowadays. Do you feel like you just have um, you know that freedom to be creative a lot more than when you started this whole career? I I would say yeah. In a startup, you have a lot of creativity because it's still early. It's you know there's a lot of processes. There's a lot of things that haven't been done yet, right? Just because you're limited on resources, it's you have to be resourceful. Exactly. Versus being a larger company, like from my experience at least, it's like. There's so many teams. There's probably a program for that. There's probably a project for that. Um, someone has already done it, right? Or um, someone's already spearheading it, right? So it's just like you're trying to find your place where you can contribute and find that impact. Right. Versus startup, like there's so much you can do, so much you can tackle. It's uncharted territories, and you can be the first to do that. Exactly. And you, you got can set the foundation. And I love when you point this out because, like, you kind of got to a point where you have um, enough knowledge and enough, like. Confidence. Probably what I want to say here is that, like, when you do want to try something, you're confident enough to put it out there and like explain why you want to do this and how it's going to impact it. As opposed to when you're saying you're like really green, like you don't really have that confidence of like mm -hmm. speaking out on something when you know that you don't really have the knowledge to back it up to begin with. So I think just even looking back at the difference between today what you're doing to uh, to compare it to what you started to do, I think the confidence really does help in there. And I just speak that for I guess. For myself as well, as an engineer nowadays, you would have so much more confidence in terms of implementing anything. Is that like you feel much more reasoned, and um, I think that's really some a position that people want to aim for. I think. Yeah, yeah, the so. confidence piece, like it's you've you now have experience that you can rely on, right? You have past events that you've gone through that you've learned and grown from, and so when you're working with certain candidates or when you're in certain situations, like oh, I've seen this before. Yeah, this is how it worked out then. This is how I can do it differently. Or this is how I can do it better. Exactly. And the, th the same thing for the person on the other side is that like if they go through 10 different interviews that like they've gained the experience but also the mm -hmm. confidence that they just get better and better and I think that's a, it's an agreement that everybody says that I mean you only get better after doing so many interviews at the end of the day. So Absolutely. That's usually um, quite fun from your point of view but also from our point of view because we're both humans like recruiters and the candidates they're all humans that's really what I'm trying to you know, Fine, even yeah. recruiters too, like we become candidates ourselves too. And, you know, when we're looking for, you know, the next career move for ourselves. Yeah. So we also go through the same process. We get the same rejections. Um, but you guys are definitely so much more eloquent and uh, and it makes it a little bit easier. <laughs> not necessarily. I mean, recruiters come in many, many different forms. Yeah. You have the eloquent ones. There's even recru some recruiters are actually introverts as well, too. You'd be surprised. I know. Um, we have sorcerers. Like, it's just there's so many different walks of life. There's so many different personalities. Um, there's so many recruiters out there where even the advantage for a candidate or an engineer in this case is that you can actually pick which recruiters you want to work with, recruiters you identify with, recruiters you get along with, recruiters where you feel like you can be your authentic self or you know that you're getting that transparency from them. That's exactly it. And this is what we're doing today. We're just breaking all the barriers of like all these stereotypes of like absolutely. engineers being introverted. You got loads of engineers out there who are absolutely like passionate about what they do. They want mm -hmm. to share it to the world and all that kind of stuff. And as you were saying, there was also the opposite for recruiters, right? Not all, not all recruiters are equal. Yeah, exactly. Like, so I really like that. Um, Another thing that I think people might be interested in is what does a day in the life of a tech recruiter looks like? So in terms of like software-wise and how you start your day, do you have like specific apps for your calendar, specific app for taking note-taking? What does that, um, I guess, your daily life look like nowadays? 
I feel like a lot of the tools we use is just like anyone else. Okay. Um, you you have your 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 email accounts, right? Depending on how you're set up, you have docs you use. Uh, there's a communication channel. If we use Slack, for example. Um, other companies have different level, uh, levels of communication for that. Uh, but uh, probably the biggest thing that separates us from everyone else is an applicant tracking system. So think of like a CRM, right? Okay, yeah. Because I know a CRM. I have to that's, that's how we are able to track the workflow of candidates as they progress in the hiring process, right? From the initial outreach to, you know, the first round conversation to a second round, maybe technical screening, uh, perhaps a take-home exercise, all the way to the offer, you name it. It helps us track where you are in the process. I was gonna say, yeah, so are there solved solutions, like enterprise solutions for those at the moment, these ATS that you're talking about? So there are enterprise solutions, there's a ton out there. Um, some are designed for larger size companies who are scaling or going through hyper growth. Some are actually designed for startup companies, right? So it, it just really depends on which product is right for you. Yeah, because I mean like nowadays, um, I mean, even in the world of CRMs, as you're saying, like the equivalent, there's so many CRMs out there because everybody wants to keep track of the flow. And then naturally with the same thing as recruiting, you got to know exactly which pipeline they're in and which one they're doing. Um, I guess this is just very specific. Do you find, uh, are there free ATS compared to like paid ATSs out there or are they almost just paid and you got <laughs> you to figure out how that works? That's a good question. Um, from my experience, I've mostly only seen paid ATS Mm -hmm. I haven't seen a free one out there. Um, if anyone's listening, if you can create an open source one, that would be amazing. <laughs> You'd be takeover all <laughs> and the industry. And absolutely, <laughs> right? Uh, but I, I think um, if, if there is something that comes to mind, it's like, I guess like a free ATS you can create. I think if you're very savvy with like spreadsheets or Excel, mm -hmm. that's also one way to track and manage. Right. And if I'm not mistaken, I just want to make sure that I'm not absolutely spilling random crap here. Um, you know, there's uh, stuff like greenhouse. Yeah, then, some of the some of the ones out there. There's greenhouse. There's gem. There's so lover. Are they all ATSs, or are they like a separate type of software that you guys use? Or so there's ATSs, and then there's also a hybrid, I guess, where you can call it it's an ATS, but also maybe um, some type of talent management system that is like campaigns and outreaches. Right. Right. Kind of. I would say. Maybe there's a product out there that bridges the gap between an ATS and maybe like a, some type of marketing tool that does like kind of like a two-in-one type of thing. Okay, because I do know a lot of, um, I guess a lot of job boards nowadays, uh, they try to, I don't know if they're all paid to be fair, because like from the point of view of somebody looking at these job boards, so you have like, I know Google Hire was a thing, but they're slowly dying out as well. So like, that's another option that we keep on seeing. Most of them are all paid solution as far as I'm seeing. So like, I guess it's the, the incentive is that you have a smaller company and what is the incentive of justifying themselves to be paying for these as opposed to just having their own way of, I guess, reaching out and finding, like why would you put resource into paying for an ATS as opposed to not having one basically for a smaller company? Um, I, I think having an ATS, it's just great to have in general because it's, it's how you, it's a way of holding people accountable, right? Like a project management tool. Yeah, um, it's a way for us to track progress um, recruiting is becoming more and more data-driven, so you have dashboards, reporting, analytics, right? So it's also great for that as well, too, just to make sure like, we can troubleshoot uh, different areas where we, you know, where, where we can improve the process, yeah. right? Helping us understand how we hire, how does that impact our strategy, um, how does that impact, you know, the candidate experience, how does that impact, um, 
you know, how we collaborate with our partners, our stakeholders who are involved with, you know, the hiring process. So it, it's really, I feel like it's very core and fundamental to have an ATS system. Okay, cool. Because I'm so glad you mentioned the candidate experience because that was the, the next thing I was going to say was that the worst thing for a candidate is just never getting a reply back. And like most of the time, just because it fell through the cracks and like it didn't caught up to it. So like a lot of these ATSs solve that problem in terms of reminding you of, you know, getting back to the candidate. Because I mean, that's the most aggravating thing. We're like, why have they not replied back to me? <laughs> like, I mean, that's always a fun thing. So. Um, the other thing is that you did mention earlier about LinkedIn and all the other powerful way of reaching out um, to candidates. So what is, I guess, what's the standard nowadays? Do you, are most people on LinkedIn, do you think that like LinkedIn has 80% of the recruiters like dictionary to do it? Or are there other like good ways of reaching out to other people if you're a recruiter? I, I would say LinkedIn's probably the most mainstream thing today. Um, a lot of recruiters are on it. But depending on the roles you're supporting and who you want to hire, I don't think everyone is on LinkedIn, yeah. right? And so the one thing, I, the, the best way I always look at it, right, is like people have different preferences for grocery stores. Someone might shop at Whole Foods okay. versus Safeway versus Costco or whatever's available, or maybe something more local like a farmer's market, right? People go to different places. I think um, the same way works on the internet, right? People who are looking for jobs or not looking for jobs, like um, there's different communities and different spaces. And as a recruiter, like we have to think creatively, okay? Yeah. Where do people like to spend their time, right? And how do we, how do we help them learn about something they wouldn't have known about without being too intrusive, right? So, or how do we help them learn more about the company, um, or maybe how do we develop that relationship so when the timing is right, they know, you know, to reach back out to us. I was gonna say, yeah, when you were mentioning different like grocery stores and everything, it's mm -hmm. so true. Just because, like, um, I think the other big ones that came to my mind is LinkedIn, Indeed, AngelList. Those are like really big standard ones that you see nowadays. Um, I think this is more like just from your experience. Out of the three that I mentioned, do you know which one do you feel has a better success rate? I think it's going to be different from recruiter to recruiter. Some people do find a lot of success um, in LinkedIn, and some people find a lot of success in the other tools that are out there. Yeah. For startups specifically, I'd say uh, if you're looking for a startup, I've, I've found a lot of success in A-List. Right. Um, because the applicants you get through that system are people who are candidates who actually, okay, I want to work with a startup, whether it's an early stage, a later stage, or maybe they're looking for a product that's very relatable for them. They've done the enterprise route. They don't want to do that again. Yeah. Right. So I, I think a lot of it's kind of more about niche markets today. So if you can find a job board out there that's niche and fits um, candidate profiles or maybe what you're looking for or what they're looking for, that's probably where you'll find the highest chance of success. That's a, that's a great uh, recommendation, I guess, just because uh, I remember when I graduated, like I definitely was looking at all these options like LinkedIn and Deedle, AngelList, and, that. and AngelList was the one that did stand out from the user's point of view, from the candidate's point of view, because everything is quite, you know, saying startup environment, a very techie environment, so mm -hmm. they found their niche and they've been doing well so far, so I'm glad that for the people who are trying out there, definitely give Angelus a shot at that point. So, mm -hmm. or even Glassdoor too, right? Because it's Glassdoor, like it's yeah. almost Glassdoor is like a one-stop shop where you can read about reviews, you can read about um, interviews, you know, get some tips, right? Get some insights in terms of like, hey, what's it like to work there, right? And, that obviously has and then you can back. also apply on Glassdoor as well too. Or if you're interested in like you know salary ranges, if that's important to you, like you can kind of get a pulse on that. Yeah, and obviously those are definitely big factors that end up affecting your decision at the end of the day, so that's really great. Um, I do have this question that somebody actually, we talk about this quite often, is how does a um, recruiter have, how much say do they have in like the actual compensation of uh, whatever the candidate, the candidate gets at the end? I would say it, it differs from company to company, Yeah. Um, just because everyone has different budgets for different roles, um, depending on how the organization is set up, right? 
every company goes through budgeting, they go through headcount allocation, um, they go through a series of what it means to make sure like, hey, how do we be fiscally responsible, but also how do we also be fiscally, uh, fiscally attractive for candidates, right? Yeah. It's that balance, right? And, it's always a balance. Um, and so my advice for candidates is if finance or if you know salary that's is really important to you, find a company um, that has more flexibility, right? Don't sell yourself short on a company that might have more restraints if they're not right for you, right? And the other side of it too is you know that you have candidates out there where like, hey, money or compensation isn't the most important thing. I want to come to an office where there's great people, good work-life balance, um, and I want to make sure like. It's just a, a good culture, right? Yeah, exactly. So no surprises. Everyone has there. different wants and needs. Yeah, that's a hundred percent true. I've seen so many cases mm-hmm. of that. Yeah. But um, I would say, oftentimes recruiters do have a say. Um, in terms of, we we give managers gut checks. We give um, HR or comp teams, whoever working with gut checks, like, if you really want this person, this is what we have to do to get them here. And if we're not able to meet the expectations, we do come across a risk, right? Yeah. So we have those conversations. Um, we're also the kind of like their advisors as well too. Um, so we not, sometimes we're not always the decision makers, but mm-hmm. we can impact or influence the decisions. And that's the thing. And if we relate back to the level of confidence, you gotta, you gotta be able to back it up as well. That really comes mm-hmm. with the years of experience at the end. Yep. So which is why, uh, it's such a you know ever evolving journey. It's an ever evolving journey, and at the end of the day, you know sometimes exceptions can be made. Yeah. Um, if you're if you're working with a recruiter who who really knows how to um, to communicate or convey like this is why this individual is bringing value, and maybe this is why we should make an exception for this particular individual. It's not going to work out every time. Exactly. But you have someone who's advocating for you whether they have a lot of budget or whether they don't have a ton of budget. It just, it's very situational. And it's really reassuring that you have somebody else like just working out for the better of you, even though they don't always have to. It's just knowing that like people are out there to, you know, see a better world for everybody at the end. So mm-hmm. that's something that I really enjoy. Um, I mean, yeah, just to wrap up everything, it's been such a fascinating topic for the past couple of, you know, uh, while I think for the people that uh, are wanting to get into tech recruiting or wanted to give it a shot, what would be the best advice for them being at the position that you were back then and be like, should I get into tech recruiting or not? I say if you want to change the way we hire and you want to make it better for everyone, whether you're an employer or a job seeker or you just want to make, you know, make it an authentic experience, um, look for a company that really values that. Right? You want hiring to be um, a good experience, right? Not a poor experience. You want hiring to be uh, inclusive, right? We want to make sure we're really able to fairly assess and evaluate everyone, you know, that applies. I think if you find yourself a company there and they provide great mentorship, great resources, that's the place you want to be at. Because again, you know, not hiring, unfortunately, is not equal everywhere, right? In Silicon Valley yeah. or even in the world. Like, find the right fit. That's so great. I mean, I hope after today we uh, we try to break all the stigmas about because I mean, engineers always have a point of view of all the recruiters out there. But honestly, you embrace every single aspect of just being a human at the end, Rich. So I mean, honestly, really appreciate for you being on the show. Yeah, no worries. No, I appreciate you reaching out and having me here today. It's it's really exciting. Um, and you know, I, I hope everyone who's listening uh, learns a thing or two about recruiting, and perhaps you know we can we can work together to make it a better world of hiring. Yeah, that's going to be great. Actually, is there anywhere that people can follow you if you're interested in that kind of that kind of stuff? Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. <laughs> Good. <laughs> you answer. can find me there. <laughs> um, 
And then I, I do have an Instagram too. I, I don't do a ton of posting, but if you if you like to follow, you can follow me at Rich Gourmet. That's great. I'm gonna link that below. But other than that, thank you so much, Gideon. I'll catch you guys later on the next episode.